Over the next few weeks, we're changing things up a little bit here on Your London Legacy. You see, 2020 marks the 400th anniversary since the Mayflower set sail from Plymouth, UK to Plymouth, Massachusetts. Now, you may not be aware of this, but the Mayflower's journey actually began in Rotherhithe on the south bank of the River Thames. The ship's captain and part owner, Christopher Jones, and many of the crew lived in Rotherhithe, which has a long seafaring and shipbuilding history. Having successfully navigated the oceans to the New World in 1620, over 30 million people can now trace their ancestry to the 102 passengers and 30 crew known as the Pilgrim Fathers. In the first episode of this new mini-series, I met up once again with American-born Londoner Jason Sandy, but this time we actually met on the foreshore of the Thames in Rotherhithe, where it all began, for a wonderful journey back in time and a spot of real-time mudlarking. We spent a few wonderful hours literally digging up the past and spotting ancient relics from Rotherhithe's shipbuilding days. Join us on the start of this wonderful journey as we celebrate the unique story of Mayflower 400. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm really excited to be back in the in the wonderful company of one of my very first guests, Jason Sandy. Appropriate where we're walking at the moment, <laughs> on the sands, sandy banks of the, the foreshore of the River Thames. Jason, as you may recall, is um, I know, one of the foremost mudlarkers in, in London. One of the biggest followers in the whole of London on your social media. Thank you. You're certainly an expert. And Jason, when I met Jason, what was it, over a year ago now, about 18 months? Yes. Always had it in the back of my mind, and I think Jason may be in his, that one day we would come down together to the foreshore on the Thames so I could actually see Jason at work doing, doing what he does best. Absolutely. Which, which, which is mudlarking and finding incredible artifacts and treasures that go back centuries, hundreds of years, in some cases, thousands, thousands of, years. of years. Yes. And it's just amazing. So we're putting this together for you. We're doing this live with a handheld recording today. Um, we are actually standing. Will you tell us, Jason, where, where are we standing? I don't know if you want to give too much away for your secrets. <laughs> We're actually uh, in Rotherhithe, which is in South London, so just south of the river. It's actually East London, Southeast London. And we're actually, it's a beautiful day today. It's about, what, 15 degrees? 15-ish degrees. Yeah, not too bad. A beautiful sunny day, very quiet. It's a early Sunday morning, and we are just gazing over the river now. We see the shard in the distance. We see the city of London and the, the skyscrapers on that side as well as if we look east as uh, blocked by a houseboat but uh, right behind the houseboat which we'll see later is Canary Wharf and all of those towers so you can potentially hear some of the seagulls and the lapping of waves along the river but uh, we're standing as Steve said on the sand we've just come down from the river wall clambered down the steps and what do you see Steve it's quite an eclectic mix of different things on the yeah, foreshore well, my, my eye has not attuned yet to um, what to me just looks like a pile of debris and rubble and stones and some burnt timbers and obviously lots of sand and bricks and things but um, Let's have a look and see what we can find. Yeah. It's, so it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I can see like a heel of a shoe here, an old heel of a shoe. 
I know there's something over there which looks a bit jewelry-ish, I don't know. <laughs> it, this is going to be fascinating, guys. So just to explain the setup of the River Thames, we in London are very close to the English Channel, and every day the tide goes up and down about seven meters twice a day. And you can see, Steve, across the river there, do you see the green slime on the back wall? Uh, yeah. So the top of the green slime, that's the high tide line. So at the moment, the river is uh, going out to sea, and I would say we're about, about maybe two meters or a meter and a half below the high uh, tide line. So this foreshore is just starting to be exposed uh, and it's gonna go out much further in the next two hours. Uh -huh. And low tide is at 11.45 this morning. So we're quarter to 10 now. Yeah, so pretty much we have two hours to, to look for things. Brilliant, well, yeah. shall we get duck stuck in then? Exactly. Come on. Great. So originally, uh, what kids used to come down here for, the original London mudlarks, the Victorian mudlarks, they were looking for coal. And if you look here, uh, we have a lot of black coal that's washed up and it's quite lightweight. Um, so it gets pushed around uh, the riverbed quite a bit. So you can see a lot of dark patches of the coal that's just been lined up. Uh -huh. So the Victorian kids would come down here and pick all of this up because it had a immediate resale value. So they would be able to take this up onto uh, the banks of the river and sell this to different households because everybody needed coal for cooking or for heating the house. So uh, the Victorian mudlarks were looking for things that were uh, that could be resold immediately. And one of the, the biggest treasures that they would find is not gold or silver, but uh, tools. So a lot of the tools that people would drop into the river because it was a working river, they would be able to resell straight back to the people that dropped them. So this area, as we'll find out in a little bit, was known for its ship breaking yards. And therefore the tools that they would use to ship or break the ships up, those were very valuable back then. So the kids would come down looking for those in order to resell them to the companies that had dropped them. So as I mentioned before, we're actually in Rutherhithe, so on the south side of the river. But if we look across just over to the north side of the river, you can see a lot of the old uh, wharfs and the docks. And the, the term wharf actually originated in London. And wharf is a, a, an anagram or acronym, acronym. sorry, acronym for warehouse at riverfront. That's right. Which is quite interesting. And you can see a lot of the old cranes that are still fixed to the old Georgian and Victorian uh, dock buildings and wharves. And you can see almost like barn doors at each level. Yes. And those would be opened up and that's where the goods would be hoisted directly off the boats that have come from foreign lands and then taken directly into the warehouse and then stored in that. And London used to be known as the warehouse of the world because there were so many different uh, products being brought in, imported into London and then distributed uh, throughout the UK. And uh, London was also the largest port in the world at one time, back in the Georgian and Victorian era. And you can just imagine this whole area called the Lower Pool of London. Oh, they must be grabbing something there. I know, sorry, sorry folks, but we've got a police, <laughs> a police boat in the middle of the Thames trying to grab something out. I'm not quite sure what he's got there. What's he got there? 
Uh, it looks like uh, some kind of floating device. Floating boy uh, or something. Yeah, boy. Maybe he's measuring something. It's okay. like an umbrella. Not, not <laughs> sure what that is. <laughs> so anyway, so back to these back to these wharfs, which are now probably luxury apartments. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so now all of these, uh, the, the Thames is uh, no longer a working river as it used to be. So a lot of these old uh, docks and warehouses have been converted into luxury accommodation. And they do have amazing views up and down the River Thames. But what I was going to say previously is you can just imagine all of the big boats that used to sail in here from all around the British Empire, bringing in all this precious cargo. And they would just sit here and just wait in order to be unloaded. And they said there were so many boats in this one area that you could walk from one side of the Thames to the other without getting your feet wet, just because the boats were so uh, densely packed in together and congested. Yeah. And they said sometimes there was so much congestion, they would have to wait three months before they could actually get to the dock and be unloaded. And that left them uh, very vulnerable to river pirates. So if you look across the river, do you see the small white pub? It's called the Prospect of Whitby. Yes. That's over on the other side. Yes, right in front of that is a tall pole with a noose. And that is a representation of the old gallows that used to be located on that side of the river. So the police boat that we just saw go past, they're part of the river police. And they were originally started back in the late 18th century uh, to ward off the river pirates because there were so many that were pillaging and pilfering from these ships that were literally sitting ducks on the Thames. And so the, the demise of the, the river pirates, uh, they would be sentenced to death and then hung by the gallows and uh, at a place called Execution Dock, which is located in Wapping on the northern side of the River Thames in this area. And if anyone wants a little bit more information on that, we were talking about six degrees of separation just before and how one guest leads to another. I met, introduced, uh, and interviewed rather uh, Robert Jeffrey, who runs the museum ah, for, the okay. for the River Police. And it's an amazing little place just over there. It was your first ever police station for the river police he's got a wonderful little museum there and you can see all the pictures all the history of uh, the river police and how they then became the the, the, the forerunners of the, of the metropolitan police yes so he's got some amazing pictures as you were saying of all the all the ships lined up here and they could walk from one to the other right, uh. right across the thames yeah. So anyway, yeah, I just yeah, thought so they were the working. first organized police force in the world, which is quite amazing. Yeah. And it all started on the River Thames because of the river pirates. Mm -hmm. And uh, for 400 years, the execution dock used to be located on that side of the river, on the north side of the river. And so the river pirates would be sentenced to death. They would be paraded down the, the main street in Wapping. They were allowed to have one pint at the Turk's Head cafe or, or pub, uh, which is no longer there. There's another version of it, but no longer on the original site. So they could have their last pint of ale before they were hung. And uh, their fate was that they would have to stay there for three tides. And the noose was below the low tide line. Uh, so that they would be hung up and then when the high tide comes in, it would wash over their heads. So if they didn't die by hanging, they would die by drowning. And they were left there for three tides. That was the jurisdiction, that three tides would have to go over their head and then they would be cut down. And they were often taken over to the current location of the O2. And the O2 arena is located right on a little point, North Greenwich. And that's where a lot of boats were sailing past. So to ward off 
future river pirates, they would put the corpses of other dead pirates Beautiful. to show them and ward them off that this is your fate if you choose river piracy. And the, the piracy could have been for really menial sort of theft as well. I mean, it was often for little little things, wasn't it? Maybe yes. Some coal or some rice or some flour or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this area of the foreshore uh, in Rotherhithe is very famous for its shipbreaking yards. So many famous ships, uh, when they were decommissioned, they were brought back here. And because the raw materials used to make a ship were so valuable, they would break them up and then resell all of the timbers and the other bits of ironwork, etc. But a lot of the iron that they couldn't uh, couldn't resell or had no use, they would just chuck into the river. So you can see in this patch of the foreshore, just the load, the layers of rusting metalwork, rusting iron that's just covering the foreshore. And I'm just gonna scrape a little bit of, around, of, of it around so you can hear the sound of the, the metalwork. So you can just hear the, the, the metalwork that's just literally laying all I mean, over the foreshore. We're not talking like a few bits, we're talking thousands of bits. Too. All different Bolts. shapes and sizes, and too. Screws. All different shapes and sizes. And this is all connected with the uh, shipbuilding trade. Yes, exactly. And it's quite astounding um, because we do find a lot of uh, very important or valuable bits uh, within these layers of rusting ironwork. And one thing that you will notice is these small pins. Do you see the small pins that I'm digging up here. Oh, wow, Some tiny. of them are minute. Your eyes are really attuned. Yeah. That is like a fine hair. Yeah, follicle. exactly. Crikey. So back in Tudor times and even earlier in medieval times, everything was held together by pins. They didn't really have zippers. Uh, they did have some buttons. Obviously, zippers came much later. Uh, so everything was held together by pins, whether it was your hair, your clothes, everything else. So a lot of these pins have just been washed out of the drains or washed out of the sewers over time as it kind of fell into those areas uh, centuries ago. But uh, I have found thousands and thousands of pins over time. Tell you what, I'm glad I've got my personal protective equipment on this morning with my steel tip boots and heels. <laughs> I wouldn't want to stand on any of these. Yes, it is very dangerous down here, so uh, you do have to wear yeah. protective equipment. <sighs> it looks like a big staple, doesn't it? Does, it does, isn't it? Incredible. <laughs> yeah. These artifacts are from decommissioned warships, and we'll see some of the timbers from the decommissioned warships down here, but this is some of the ironwork that came off of those boats centuries ago. Okay. So Jason, how often do you come down to the river? So it always depends on the uh, low tide timetable. So I've got a, a timetable from the Port of London Authority and uh, I check that and I pretty much come every two weeks uh, because that's when the low tides are. So I would say on average I come down about twice every two weeks, so about four times a month. And the items that you find, I mean, you've got a backpack on, so presumably you can only take small items with you. But what, what are the rules about what you can take, what you have to leave, or what you have to just show to the, uh, the Museum of London? 
So in order to go mudlarking in London, everyone must have a permit from the Port of London Authority. So you go online to their website and you download the application form. It costs about uh, 70 pounds for three years for the permit. And that entitles you to be able to come down and search for historic artifacts down here on the foreshore. And part of that permit is anything that's 300 years or older must be reported to the uh, Museum of London. <clears throat> and it's a great service that they provide because they identify everything that you find and um, in return they get to see all of the amazing things that are found by mudlarks. And you've got your own, you've obviously built up your own collection. So they just have to see, but you said you've got to establish if it's over 300 years. I mean, you've got to have some great historical knowledge of artifacts to be able to determine that. Or do you, I'm sure you just take it with and you show it to them. Yeah, so uh, when I first started mudlarking, I didn't have a clue how old right. things were. So I'd take a whole uh, sack of things <laughs> into the to the Museum of London and they would just laugh and just say, this is uh, yeah, modern <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Uh, but you do get your eye in and you do start to understand how thing, how old things are over time. Wow. So I would say now I only take about maybe 10 things in per time. Okay. And they take about five things for recording. And those are recorded on the uh, British Museum's Portable Antiquities Scheme. And that's a project that they've uh, organized where anything that's found by the members of the public, so metal detectorists, mudlarks, field walkers, all of that's recorded on a central database. So everybody can look up those artifacts and learn from each other. Okay. And your collection at home is just things that they've seen and they said you're okay to keep? Yes. So they do ask for donations sometimes, but as you can imagine, the Museum of London has so many artifacts already that they're only looking for like the very unusual, really the very special. rare, special yeah. things. So we're allowed to keep everything that we find unless they'd like to have a donation or if they acquire it. So sometimes they do pay uh, the finder to, to put it into their collection. Excellent. So what have I just found here then, Jason? Just lay, laying on top of the uh, the rubble as we're walking along. Well, well spotted, Steve. That's a very nice <laughs> piece. My first. Yeah, so that's a piece of Victorian pottery, and it's called transferware because they used to transfer the actual design onto the surface of the piece of pottery. And I just saw originally a leaf on one side, but if you flip it over onto the other side, you can see a beautiful design of of about three flowers uh -huh. and kind of a cluster. And it looks like a, looks like a, like a, a Greek kind of pattern yeah. around the rim. And it looks like that was part of a bowl because it has a nice kind of curved form to it. So well done, Steve. Please tell me that's worth a couple of million. <laughs> <laughs> no? <laughs> Maybe two pence. Got <laughs> <laughs> <Cut> it. <laughs> oh, Well, it's, take, it's taken a while. We thought we were going to be unlucky today. But uh, Jason has cunningly, because of his amazing eyesight, managed to find something which he is very good at finding. So tell us a little bit more what I'm now holding in my, my palm of my hand, Jason. So it took us a little while to find these because they are so tiny, but they're actual a real garnet. So a semi-pressured gemstone that is not native to the River Thames, but uh, for some reason we find them in certain clusters and there's a cluster of them uh, here along the foreshore where we're now uh, scraping away. And uh, yeah, so 
I've taken these to the Museum of London, to the Natural History Museum, and also to the Victoria and Albert Museum, and interviewed different gemologists and also the cura curator there at the Museum of London. And there's many different theories as to why these are along the River Thames. So the theory that I like the most, personally, is that a sack of these garnets was transported potentially by the East India Company bringing them and importing them from uh, Southeast Asia. So a lot of these have been analyzed and they come from either Sri Lanka or India or other countries from within that region. And these are beautiful because they aren't native to the Thames, but we find uh, big clusters of these things, especially in this area. And I kid you not, these are absolutely minuscule and unless you really really know what you're looking for you would never see them i asked jason before he sort of uplifted them to, to show me the rough area where they were and i could not see i couldn't tell them he's apart from little bits of gravel but now they're in the palm of my hand they are what i don't know what three four millimeters <laughs> wide i guess yes, maybe that's exactly. sort of size yeah. and you can just start to see the color as i hold them up to the light you see the translucence of them and I know Jason has done some amazing things with these. He's made, had them made into necklaces and bracelets for his family. And they are stunning. What was the biggest one you said you found? Uh, so I found one that's cut. These are all uncut. They're natural garnets. But the one that I found that's cut, it's uh, 8.2 carats. Wow. So it's quite a whopper. And that was cut. And it's a, a Hessenite garnet from Sri Lanka. Amazing. So with the sack of garnets, we think that potentially when the East India Company arrived, uh, scrupulous characters might have dropped a few sacks of the garnets over the boat at high tide, thinking that at night that they could come back and retrieve the, uh, the little sack of garnets and potentially they could never find it at night. And that's why the sack is disintegrated, leaving only the garnets and they've been dispersed over time into small clusters on the foreshore. Uh, so we're standing in front of the river wall here, and the river wall is actually part of a building. So it's an old wharf or warehouse building that's literally directly on the Thames. And below us is a load of bricks, and the bricks aren't kind of uh, strewn apart. They're actually still together. And it's quite interesting because this is a wall that was blown off the building during World War II. So in this area is where the German bombers uh, focused their efforts. Uh, because this was the infrastructure that they were trying to crush in Britain. And London at that time was still the largest port in the UK and a lot of deliveries and a lot of things like war supplies were being delivered in London. So the German bombers would fly up the Thames and drop their uh, heavy bombs in the area of Rotherhithe trying to cripple the infrastructure. So if you look up at the building, you can see where the, the brickwork has been patched, uh -huh. where the bricks had fallen off the building and landed on the foreshore and have laid here ever since the London Blitz and then they've patched it in uh, where it fell out of the main facade. You've got these lovely old yellow bricks as well haven't you? Yeah yeah so you can still see the mortar that's still keeping the bricks together mm. and it is a kind of poignant reminder of the horrible atrocities that people lived through during the London Blitz and over 40,000 people died uh, over the series of many of attacks uh, between 1941 and 1944. Is that is that presumably one of the things that attracts you to foraging and mudlarking on the foreshore here? Is that it's not just the personal 
stories of individuals, but the history of a people of a you know through the centuries from London from the birth right through to present day almost yeah absolutely that's the thrill of coming down it's here so exciting, um, you can it? tell from my accent that I'm American and our history uh, is not that old or the European history is not that old in the United States but when you come down here you really do get an idea of what's going on uh, in London for the last 2,000 years of occupation so each piece that we find is evidence uh, and tells a different story of London and Londoners and how they lived and worked and even died here in London. So we've just walked, uh, I don't know, what, 100 yards, 150 yards away from the uh, the collapsed brick wall. And now we've come to what appears to be a, a lot of um, chalk, which um, I think Jason knows a little bit about. <laughs> He's <Yes>. smiling. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the boats that were delivering um, cargoes from big ships so the seagoing vessels couldn't come up to the river wall so they would offload their uh, cargo onto what was called a lighter ship uh -huh. and you can see some of these that are still out in, in the Thames and the reason why they're lighter ships is because they have a flat bottom uh, side of the boat and when the tide goes out they can just sit directly onto uh -huh. the foreshore so what they would do they were quite clever is they would take uh, large kind of oak timbers and make a stable structure and then put layers of normal gravel on top of that and then the top layer was always chalk and primarily from Dover and from the south coast and chalk is a very soft material a soft stone and so therefore it wouldn't puncture the bottom of the boats so the boats would come up and just sit directly next to the river wall and then as the tide drops it would just sit flat on these uh, barge beds as it was called and then the chalk would protect them from damaging the bottom at the boots. Oh, that's ingenious. Absolutely. So over time, the, the river has been uh, constantly eroding away the chalk beds and reveals a lot of the, uh, the ancient artifacts that are laying underneath the chalk beds that have, have been covered up for many centuries but are now coming to light. So these chalk beds are a few hundred years old, going back to what, 1700s? Uh, yeah, so probably Georgian to uh, Victorian times. Mm and they were probably last refreshed back at the turn of the century and then as the uh, river um, transport and all of the shipping moved downstream they've just been left to erode out from the waves from the river So this area of the foreshore, you can see a lot of the old timbers. So a lot of these timbers are quite interesting because uh, they're made of solid oak and they're about 300 years old. But there's one individual post that we can see sticking out of the mud, which isn't actual timber. And Steve, I want to see if you can actually point out which one isn't timber of the full lot and why. So I'll give you a clue. You can see a whole row of these posts that used to support uh, some of the barge beds. The barge bed is now eroded away, but there's one particular one that is a bit rounder than the others. One Which one? Ah, well spotted, <laughs> well, well spotted. You know I'm hopeless at spotting things. Yeah. So this one is quite interesting. Uh, because it is different from the rest. Yeah, so why is this one different than the structure of all the others? Well, it looks more 
Oh, it's more circular, more cylindrical in shape. That's correct. Others. Yeah, all the others are kind of hone timbers that have flat sides, and this one is a curvilinear. It's not an exact ellipse, but it's very close to an ellipse. What do you think that was from? And the hint is, it was from an animal. Oh, wow. Couldn't possibly say it was big enough to be from an elephant or something. I don't know. That's close. Is it That's close? close. Not a mammoth. <laughs> no, it's not from a woolly mammoth. It's actually from a whale. A whale. So whale this whale. is a whale's rib bone, and uh, right down the river here is Greenland Dock, and Greenland Dock got its name from Greenland, where the harpooners would go and they would catch their whales and they would bring them back to London to be processed. And a lot of times, because the whales were so large, they couldn't process them at sea. So they would literally haul them back to London and then process them here. And everything from a whale would be reused. Uh, they would uh, boil the, the, the blubber to make oil, uh -huh. and they would use all the different bits. And even the whale bones, the rib bones, would be used, like we see here, to support some of the barge beds or to support some of the revetments. Uh, so they were just a multi-purpose animal that could be reused. And a few years ago, I think it was a bit over 10 years ago, they found a complete whale skeleton eroding out of the foreshore. And the Museum of London excavated that and had that put on display in the Docklands Museum. And it was huge, absolutely massive whale that was brought back from Greenland. So Steve, we're in an area where we've got a lot of these big ship's timbers around us. And this one looks quite interesting um, because it has a unique shape at the end. Can you kind of explain what you're seeing? Uh, it is how many, one, two, I don't know, what is it? Three, four meters in length? I don't know about, um, I don't know. It's got cut holes all the way through, square cut holes fairly evenly spaced all the way through. I don't know, is it a ship's mast or something we're looking at? Okay, good guess, <laughs> good guess. Do you see at both ends, you have kind of a rounded bit yes. within the, the shape. Uh-huh. So this was actually put on wheels, and those uh, holes that you see, they had pegs going in them, and this was the ship's windlass. So they would actually roll up the ship's mast uh. Uh, the sail, sorry, the sails yes. onto this. So it would be rotating constantly as the people were actually uh, pulling in the sail at high sea. So this windlass was part of a, a large ship previously, but it's now on the, uh, the foreshore because it's been used to support the barge bed. So they would create what was called a grid iron and this would again be laid flat and then ships would sit on top of this and then this would be infilled again with uh, chalk and other softer stones in order for the uh, lighter boats, these flat bottom boats to rest onto. So all of these old ships that were decommissioned and taken apart would be recycled and the timbers would be used for many other purposes and some of them are still here today after 300 years much down here because it's the waves that are doing all of the scraping. So a lot of my best finds have been found just with my eyes, no scraping required, uh, just because the Thames Clippers and all the other boats are uh, doing all the scraping for me. So this is a scrape-free zone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so over here, Steve, you see all of the nails that are projecting out of the, uh, the big heavy ship's timber here? Yes. And those were used to obviously secure different things in place. 
And a lot of times these nails are not uh, like this. You see this big rusty iron nail. Yeah. Uh, so this was very dangerous on a boat that was carrying gunpowder. So a lot of times they would use these nails, which you can see that's a lot less crude than this big iron nail. This is made of brass or of copper. And the reason why they would use brass or copper is if you hit this with something metallic, it doesn't strike uh, no a spark. spark. It doesn't spark. Gotcha. Whereas with iron, if you hit it, you get a nice spark from it, which is very dangerous when your uh, cargo is mainly gunpowder. I wonder um, how many times it took them before they learned that lesson the hard, <laughs> <the> hard way. <laughs> exactly. But uh, these, uh, these uh, little nails are quite interesting because uh, the British Navy at that time, if it was their property, they would uh, mark that you can't see it here but uh, they would mark that with an arrow and it's uh, three lines in kind of an arrow shape and that's called the broad arrow and that was uh, the indication that it was property of the British Navy and so a lot of these nails that we find have that broad arrow and that just shows you that it was part of the a British naval ship that's been broken up here So what have you found there, Jason? So if you look closely, uh, you can see a round thing. Uh -huh. uh, it looks like it's face down. It could be just an iron rivet, but it could be something more interesting. Uh, why don't you pick it up and flip it over and go see on if then. we found Let's something. Let's have a go at this then. Okay. So it's got a fairly ornate pattern on the reverse or the, oh, the, wow. the front side. Yeah, that's gorgeous. It is lovely. It looks like, I don't know, some sort of button perhaps. Yeah, so it's a two-part button. So it actually has a back that's part of one side, and then on the other side, it's got almost a cap that's adhered to it. And it's hollow. So if you look in the back, you can see that it's hollow oh, yeah, inside yeah. where the uh, shank used to come out of. And it's um, it's definitely not a military button. It looks like a, a very nice button from a coat. And I would definitely say this is not from a, a poor individual. This no, is no. probably from literally the top brass. Um, so somebody that definitely had money and maybe even owned one of these uh, shipbreaking yards. So this is uh, definitely a Georgian button, just judging from the ornate patterns. You can see almost like a scallop or a shell yes. shape with all these kind of almost rococo uh, looking like um, vegetative patterns. Yeah, it's lovely. What's it made from? Brass. It's brass. Yeah, so yeah. that will shine up very nicely when I take that home and give it a little clean. You do so, that. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Well done. In this area, there are a lot of Georgian uh, gentlemen that used to live in this area that were very wealthy. Uh, they lived from the, the cargo that they were importing and exporting and making their money uh, from those uh, shipping operations. <laughs> so just, just <laughs> before we get washed away <laughs> by a big boat that's just gone past, another city cruise liner, we're now walking past what is believed to be one of the oldest pubs on this stretch of the, the Thames called the Mayflower. And it's called the Mayflower for a very good reason, Jason. <laughs> yes, this is the area where the Mayflower boat, uh, the, the boat that took the early uh, settlers, so the, the pilgrims over to the United States. So the, the uh, pub was originally called the Ship and uh, Captain Christopher Jones, that was a captain of the Mayflower and his crew, this was kind of their local watering hole where they would go for their food and for their ales. And right behind that is a St. Mary's Church where they actually were members of the local church. So this is a very, very historic area of London. 
and the Mayflower boat set sail from here in July 1620 and it carried about 60 passengers including crew and it sailed to Southampton where it picked up the other pilgrims that were coming from the Leiden colony that was in uh, the Dutch Republic or in former Holland or in Holland and they met together in Southampton and then made their way over to Plymouth picking up more supplies and then sailed over to America. So the original voyage actually started right where we're standing now or here nearby. Right outside the Mayflower pub and I've just spotted something unique and uh, I do like finding coins but I'd much prefer to find artifacts. Now Steve, in this patch here I can see something unusual. Can you, uh, can you spot it? Can you do that? Yeah, do you want to pick that up for us? What do you think this is? I don't know, part of a brooch or a buckle or something? So it's uh, even more unusual. <laughs> even more unusual. It's I haven't not, got anything right yet today, have I? It's <laughs> not complete, but uh, you can see a bit of decoration again. So this is uh, definitely Georgian. And uh, it's not complete because the, there's a little head that's missing on this top bit. But there's a little shaft and a little shank that has a little hole at the end. What do you think that was used for? I haven't got the foggiest. So with this know. little head, it used to pivot. And this is a watch winder. Ah, so back God. in Georgian times, every man would have a watch winder if they had a watch. And that would be fixed onto a little chain. And every time that their watch would need a bit of a, a topping up, they would use this, insert that into the hole, ah. and then wind it up manually. Uh, how lovely. Yeah. So that would be the same this side as well, would it? So just to get some leverage, is that the bit that goes into the watch? I think this is, this is definitely the bit that goes yeah. into the watch. And the head is what you would actually swivel. So that's the, that's the pivot point, and you kind of swivel it around in order to wind your watch. Well spotted. And I've well only spotted. found three of these. I've never found a complete one, unfortunately, but uh, these are things of beauty. So that's a good find. You're happy with oh, that? Oh, yeah, very yeah. happy. If that's all we find the rest of the day, you'll be delighted. Well, I like it. the button as well. <laughs> so we're having a good day so good. far. Well, we've been going at it now for, I don't know, what, an hour and a half or so? Yeah, at least. Quite a while. The weather's still holding out, which is great. It's really been a fabulous day for it. So we're, we're nearing the end, but we, well, not me. Jason just stumbled across a George the Sixth, Sixth. George the Sixth halfpenny. Yes, the date is 1944. 1944. And we found it amongst the rubble from World War II bombing raids. Yeah. So exactly that time period, 1944, was towards the end of World War II, yeah. the end of the Blitz. Absolutely, so we've gone from where all the blown up brick wall was. Well, even to here. All right down to here. World and War II. who knows, this might have come from a bombed out building just exactly. left in the rubble. Well, if you notice here along the foreshore, the houses There's are missing yeah. because they were blown up and never rebuilt. And that's why you see so many bricks littering the foreshore. Right. So that coin could have been in somebody's house on their dresser bomb fell, blew everything up, Absolutely. landed in the river, and you just picked it up today. Yeah. So. Well, in fairness, you found it. Okay. <laughs> you're, very, you're very kind to me. <laughs> I, I rinsed it off and established that there is some sort of a ship on the back yeah, of it, it on the like reverse side. Ship. It does. So. so we'll have to check that out. It would be ironic if it was the Mayflower. <laughs> uh, it wasn't be an anniversary 44? I don't know. I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. We'll check it out. We'll, we'll check it out. We'll, we'll, we'll post it up somewhere. Nice find, though. <laughs> yes. 
Well, we just left the foreshore and what, up the steps. We've just finished for the day on the mudlarking yeah, part. We, we so where are we day. now? We've had a fantastic day. Weather's closing in a bit. It's getting a bit chilly and a bit murky overhead. That's been great. We've, I've learned such a lot and seen such a lot. And oh, uh, thank you very much. And now we're going to head, before we head off to the uh, Mayflower and uh, sample some of their delights, <laughs> we're going to have a little bit of a wander around the back streets of Rotherhide. Exactly. Yeah. 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 If I can avoid being run over by cyclists, that would be very good as well. <laughs> well, today is the 3rd of November, and we are about three weeks away from the American Thanksgiving holiday. And I love coming to this area of London because this is where the Mayflower set sail and where the uh, first Thanksgiving uh, originated after the pilgrims arrived one year after uh, they arrived in 1620, in December 1620. Uh, before us, we're looking at the St. Mary's Church, which is in the heart of Rotherhide, and it's a very historic area. And you can just imagine all of the merchants and the sailors and captains and other seagoing uh, people that used to live in this area. And in front of us on the wall, it says London Borough of Southwark, and it says Sailing of the Mayflower on the blue plaque, and it reads, in 1620, the Mayflower sailed from Rotherhithe on its first stage of its epic voyage to America. In command was Captain Christopher Jones of Rotherhithe. And the Captain Christopher Jones is actually buried here in the church. And many of the crew members from the Mayflower were originally from this parish church. So he went over on the, one of the first voyages to America with the Pilgrim Father, the Founding Father. Yes, and then he exactly. came back. And he, he died on when he was back here, obviously, and was buried here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. unfortunately, he died just a few uh, months after he returned. And that's uh, yeah, a travesty that, that actually happened because he is one of the uh, most important people in establishing that first colony uh, in Massachusetts. It was actually the second uh, British colony permanent settlement that was set up in America. The first one being um, the Jamestown settlement. And those colonists that sailed from London originated originally from the Blackwall area of London. That's where they set sail in 1606 and then started the Jamestown colony in 1607. And then just a few years later is when the Pilgrims sailed from here in Rotherhithe in 1620 to start the second permanent settlement in uh, North America. So this area is beautiful because of the historic buildings. And uh, just right beside the St. Mary's Church here in Rotherhithe, we see a school building, which is St. Mary's Rotherhithe. And I believe you were saying that it's a, was a charity well, or I, for I'm orphans? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it said on the plaque there, it, it was a, um, a charity. Um, so I'm guessing maybe orphans were placed there. And if it was, I don't know, <laughs> Charity today is different from the charities in those days. That's the way kids were looked after in those days. So maybe I don't know whether it was a charity, a workhouse, or something. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful it's old a building. Beautiful old building. And above the entrance, it has two figurines. One of a boy uh, dressed up in a uh, kind of traditional Georgian uh, outfit, and then uh, a small girl that's also yeah wearing something traditional from the Georgian time period. And they're beautifully painted, and they've recently been restored, and they look lovely on the brick-faced building. So now we've walked from the church. We're now standing directly outside the Mayflower pub on Rotherhithe Street. 
So I'm going to hand you back to Jason for a bit of an update. Yeah, so we walked down a beautiful cobbled stone road. Uh, it's a very quiet area here in London, and we're standing right outside the Mayflower Pub, and there's three plaques that uh, are fixed to the building that I just wanted to read out for you because you're not able to see them. The first one is a, a blue plaque, and again it says London Borough of Southwark. It says Mayflower Pub, formerly the Spread Eagle, from circa 1790 to 1957, and it was renamed to commemorate Rother High's role in the voyage of the Mayflower in 1620. Then there's another plaque that's lower down on the facade, and it says, this restored 16th century public house was originally called the Spread Eagle. It is named after the ship chartered by the Pilgrim Fathers who left Rotherhithe for America in 1620. Then on the third plaque it says, Built in the 17th century, the Mayflower has been the favored inn for many illustrious adventurers, none more so than Captain Christopher Jones, who set sail in the Mayflower in 1620 to discover the New World. Today, the view across the Thames from the Mayflower and our jetty provides a constant reminder of those historic days. The bars still offer a fine selection of traditional ales. Very important. And on that note, let's go let, in. Let's head inside. So we're literally walking from the Rotherhithe Street into the pub. So I'll just leave it open for a bit of ambiance as we come inside. Here we go. Wow, beautiful oldie worldie. Oh, this is stunning. This is really glorious. And if you look right above the bar, they have a model of the old Mayflower ship. And uh, comically, they put the Statue of Liberty on top of the actual boat and a couple other small memorabilia. Let's, let's find a table. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support. <laughs>